the river, gathering May rains from cold streamlets for the sea, murmuring Mogami by Basho. Welcome to another episode of Thought Process. Uh, today I am joined by a very special friend named Jim Selkin. Jim is a producer, photojournalist, and copy editor. Hey, Jim. Glad to hey, have you on Marco, the podcast. How are you? <laughs> Thank you. It's a pleasure. Yeah. Um, you know, today's episode is is really about um, traveling. And um, it's, it's something that I've always been interested in, but it's also something that I've never had, um, like, the, you know, the privilege to do. And... Right. Um, yeah. Um, so I wanted to talk to you. I mean, you've been traveling um, for the largest part of your life, I assume. Right. And um, yeah, so if you if you can, if you can give us a little bit of your background. Um, I know you're my only friend from Brooklyn at the moment. So and I'm wearing my Made in Brooklyn T-shirt. No, nice. For your, uh, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, actually... I mean, by today's standards, I probably am not um, as adventurous as some people have gone. But growing up in New York, um, as, an, as a kid, I was taken by my parents traveling through New England, up to Canada, to Toronto, to Montreal, which is actually my one of my all-time favorite cities that I wish I could move to. Um, Canada, be you know, became very interesting to me. It opened my horizons. Mm -hmm. We traveled all up and down the eastern seaboard um, with my dad's brother and his wife, my aunt, um, <laughs> who had a fear of flying. So we went by train, which was actually very interesting because it opened my eyes to train travel, sleeping on a train, doing, um, even as a young kid. So we've been up and down the, you know, at that time, the coast. So it, it was through a lot of early experiences, um, kind of planted a wanderlust in me and a sense of, I got to get out there and see the world. Um, photography was something handed to me by my dad. I remember, I still have it somewhere, a, a great picture I took with a, okay, I'll date myself, with a brownie <laughs> camera um, of my parents sitting by the shore. I was raised in the Bay Ridge section, which mm -hmm. is down by the water. And um, it was kind of like, hey, this is a really cool picture. And from kind of that point on, I was fascinated with being behind the camera of that was my sort of window on the world. It was also kind of a way of inserting myself into circumstances, but I could protect myself behind the camera. I see. So I kind of looked and made the camera as my key or my, um, it unlocked the door to travel I didn't know it at the time, but I was traveling um, when I left during my time in university. And when I left university, I went 
made my trips, started making my trips overseas, um, went to Italy, Israel, um, took pictures. But then I went the following year to Tahiti because I was studying. I wanted to see where Gauguin worked. He was my favorite impressionist painting. Mm -hmm. And uh, my aunt was in the travel field, actually. And she got me hooked up and I went to Tahiti, came back. I was exploring and taking pictures the way I felt they should be taken from yeah. my viewpoint. And when I came back um, through a short process and very fortunate, my pictures were recognized and I was um, introduced again through my aunt in the field. And through a series of introductions, I wound up working with Air France out of New York and their uh, public relations department. So I was basically doing a lot of PR photographs and I'm, I was kind of champing at the bid and, and telling the guy, well, when are you going to send me overseas? When am I going to really start traveling and stop mm -hmm. taking these like corporate pictures, but be patient, be patient. And then one summer when I was uh, during the time I was teaching and going to grad school, he sent me to Japan as a first assignment, overseas assignment for the airline. And that kind of just, number one, launched my career and opened my eyes to actually seeing Asia firsthand and why Japan resonates with me so much. Because yeah. it was, you know, not only my first place, photographically, but design-wise, everything that I was working in, studying in, um, really came together there. So um, for the next four years, I was basically working as a freelance photographer for them and magazines and things traveling. You know, in today's world, um, oh, there are so many great photographers out there, so many people, but, you know, back then, you were traveling with film, you uh -huh. were traveling with, um, you had to make sure that the film didn't get destroyed going through multiple x-rays or you had to courier back with the airline. I remember when I was in, in Japan, I had to send things back on Air France through the, the airline to yeah. get back to Paris. Wow. You know, things like that. It was stories that little idiosyncrasies, which today at a press of a computer button, you send an image and, you know, that's how it gets from one country or place to right. another. Back then, it was a little different story. I mean, we're talking 30 years plus. Do, do, do you so, miss those days? The days where um, it wasn't as simple? I mean, today in today's world, it's a lot more convenient, right? Sure, um, you sure. can communicate uh, and, with other people. It's 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 a great uh, it's a great communication today. We have plus or minus, good or bad, for the usage of it. But there was a sense of adventure. There was a sense of romance um, that you were being sent on assignment. Right. You, they wanted you for your viewpoint. Right now, in truth, I know there's a lot of photographers who today it's more convenient to go hire a photographer. In uh, you know, if you're doing a shoot in Paris, why send someone over when you can get a 
a really yeah. good it's a lot cheaper right? photographer it, it yeah it's it's a big cost factor unless you know it's something extremely special mm-hmm. and i got to say that today the art of photography has really gotten watered down to to a great degree yeah. um with cell phones and everything else but the true craft and the true sense of travel um beyond the instagramming and beyond the stuff if you're still a true photographer i mean i'm a member of certain associations and you see really good work and that it there are a number of people out there who have very very credible work um professional standards it's not a question of when you're professional you're earning your income from that mm-hmm. there's there's always a difference and it's also um not just the fact that you know it, it, a lot like nowadays with the technology that we have uh particularly cameras and cell phones you know you can everybody can take a picture of something right but right. it's the the spin and the perspective of a true photographer that really um tells a story behind the picture um i think that's I, I i think it's very true and that's why still people are getting sent or hired for assignments because they have a style i mean it's a lot of your publicity and who you know and how you market yourself rather mm-hmm. than your talent today but in truth when it comes down to your ability it's what story are you telling and why is your perspective better than someone else's? Right. I mean, I'm, I'm on a couple of sites where I'm mentoring as, as a mentor and, um, you know, be, having been a former teacher and in photo judge for different photo associations and things, mm-hmm. I look at it and I, you always want to encourage somebody to give their sense of expression. Um, I don't want to get off on a riff of photography today, but you see a lot more amateurish stuff and people are praising it and things and they haven't the foggiest idea of what they're talking about. Yeah. And that's kind of the irritating part to someone who is a professional and you're raised and a, you know, it's, it's just the function of the time. And that's all. And I would imagine that it's frustrating because you're a person who, um, you know, really cares for the craft. Right. Right. And right. it's not just, uh, Oh, look, I'm just posting this on Instagram to get X amount of yeah. likes. Exactly. Uh, and you know, which actually brings us to, to your, photography in Southeast Asia and how, you know, I was taking a look at your portfolio. I mean, I've, I've seen some of your work in the past, right? Uh, particularly with some, you, some pictures that you left here and you, uh, you <laughs> gifted to me that were hanging in the office. Oh, right. Um, but I, I did look at your portfolio online and I saw a lot of different and interesting things that you posted, um, which are, particularly in Southeast Asia? Well, actually, that's, I'm glad you raised that point because I'm seeing an evolution in my own work, um, even after not being a full 
time professional and staying with it because my career has taken certain tangent points mm-hmm. or tangential directions. But um, it basically is revolved around travel and expressing through the medium of photography. So um, I would say that I've, when I look at a picture and what you're seeing on my websites from the samples that I've put up from countless number of photos, when I try to go to a country, I try to capture the real essence of the country. I don't pose pictures. Um, you can go through stock agencies today. You, I see people posting online. There are so obviously posed pictures. Mm-hmm. Um you know, that's the way the person wants to do it. That's the way the person wants to do it. I have, I guess, always had at the roots of photojournalistic experience a real-time approach to things. But at the same token, studying some major influential photographers in my life, um, namely my thesis teacher in, in college was a famous photographer called Walter Rosenblum. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was a street photographer in New York. He was also a combat photographer and the first um, photographer to go in and capture the liberation of the Dachau concentration camp, which when we've talked to him is what we did talk to him about it was just um, such an emotional experience. And then going back before that, Henri Cartier-Bresson, who was one of the most famous street photographers ever, a founding member of the Magnum uh, Photo Association, mm-hmm. he talked about capturing the decisive moment. And yes, it and it all has to do with an innate sense of composition and design. And I think that's the difference today which I've always tried, regardless of what I'm shooting, is to capture a beautiful image compositionally. It'll stand out as a solo frame. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I'm the one who doesn't take 100 pictures just to get one. Um, I would rather shoot a few just to get, you know, a a limited choice because if I'm not going to see it right away and it's not going to be compositionally perfect, then it's not worth taking the picture as far as I'm concerned. Oh, I see. Um, so it's, it's a craft. You're right. You're absolutely right. It is an inherent craftsmanship that I have for the medium. Yeah. Um, I did see some pictures where, you know, like you said, it, it wasn't a posed picture. It was more of a, you're capturing the raw moment. Right. And in it, you find a whole story you know, I, I went through, um, yeah, the different portfolios you have, like the Kai Lung, which is the Vietnamese folklore opera. Right. And uh, you can see with the with the pictures, you can see the extensive process it is to get ready for the opera if you're a performer. Well, I'm glad you brought that one up because those stories which I put into the blog, which had been actually published here in Saigon and abroad, 
Um, really, now what I'm doing is concentrating a little more on the photojournalistic side. I mean, I'm not out here. I'm not out doing capturing protests or things like that because there aren't any. Uh, I'm not a combat photographer. But what I'm doing is a slice of life from an expat's perspective, which is how most of those stories have been constructed. So what I'm doing, again, is applying, even when I go out and do the plastic story or the cardboard the series on recycling or the Kailung story, the opera story, because my friend knew that I was a devotee of opera in New York um, and took me to see local, a local traditional opera. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm approaching it as regardless of what I'm shooting, and I, I've never seen these things before. There's no rehearsal time. I don't know what's going on. I'm shooting real time. I'm still composing an image that's going to be compositionally satisfactory to me. Yeah. Um, and hopefully, like you said, they're telling stories at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. I was able to piece it together. It was really easy. It was, uh, you know, you, you know, nowadays people are doing videos, uh, but there's something about just capturing a, a, a specific moment that you just found interesting, um, you know, like the actors putting on makeup, yeah, or um, you know, just you know, uh, basically getting ready, like mentally getting ready for the the performance, which is That's uh, you know, what I was again, after you, which is exactly, uh, yeah, I think that I mean, uh-huh. not to excuse me, not to belittle the the craft, but video is. A lot easier. I mean, I've worked on videos, commercials when I was back in New York. I've worked on, you know, semi-documentaries or infomercials type of thing here, more documentary. Mm -hmm. And there's still a lot of preparation and how you're going to shoot it and then editing. But I like to think when I shoot video, you can pull any frame out and still it will look like I'd be proud to put it on the wall as a, as a photograph. That's what I learned from Cartier Bresson. That's what I learned from the the late photographer, famous fashion photographer, Richard Avedon, who studied with Cartier Bresson said the same thing. Mm -hmm. You pull any frame out and you can go hang it on the wall. Video is forgiving to a great degree to me, truly make a good photograph that tells a story is harder. Yeah. Yeah. I would imagine. Yeah. You know, with video, sometimes the frames just blend in, right? Yeah. I mean, it's gorgeous work. Don't don't get me wrong, but it's a little bit easier because it's more forgiving. You don't have to capture everything in one phrase but even when i was shooting even when i do shoot or was shooting video i would still make the composition as if i was shooting stills right yeah that's it's really interesting jim um now you know something that popped up from that portfolio that we were just talking about was the um yeah you you uh captured a series of photos 
in regards to a, a versatile plastic stool that I had that never, yeah, I'd never really paid attention to until it came up. You know, I've seen movies of Vietnam. And, um, I've seen, you know, pictures. I've seen, you know, a bunch of things. But the the stool has been there all along. I just never looked at it. Well, that was the premise of the article for one of the magazines. And um, let me just put in a little disclaimer. I sent them a whole portfolio of pictures. These are the ones they chose to put in the article. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a challenge because I didn't do chairs. I yeah. only did stools. Uh-huh. And um, it would have been so much easier had I done stu- chairs and stools because chair plastic chairs and plastic tables are all over the city, everywhere for everything. While stools are, they're beyond restaurants, beyond sidewalk restaurants or a place you sit down and have a drink quickly. They're, they're a little less um, visible. Yeah. Um, I mean, where I went in and got pictures of guys motorbike mechanics sitting on stools, artists sitting on stools, street artists sitting on schools doing sketching of clients. Um, I was really challenged to find something beyond just a rest, an outdoor restaurant. Yeah. So, and then find anything in different colors because Almost everybody has red stools. <laughs> uh, chairs come in a rainbow of colors, but stools sort of only come in red and blue. Yeah. And then I was really happy when I found that green place. Um, I don't know if they remember now if they put the picture in, but um, there was a health food stand on one of the main thoroughfares. And I just said, I'm taking pictures here because you're the only people I've ever seen with green stools anywhere. <laughs> so, um yeah, I, I really wound up sticking my uh, – getting caught a little bit and challenging myself to go find more samples of stools other than for the typical outdoor quick restaurant stuff. Yeah. But they came out really cool, man. It, it was just really interesting to see how how much they are used. You know, it's not just a – some uh, you know, a piece of furniture to sit on. It's right, right. it holds people's groceries. Um yeah, it could be the table that you know you and your buddies are playing a game like a board game on. It's right. just that really interesting. There, and the guy by the central market where he put all his flowers out, and I was over in another right. part of the city where they were doing displays of, of uh spices, you know, and uh, herbal herbs for uh, herbal medicine, big bags that were all in stools right <laughs> yeah it's just you really could, interesting you could, you how you the culture is you could stack them take them inside you know and there goes your display it's and so easy you, know, you could wrap up your display in 10 minutes yeah you know? here in this in you know the first world like the u.s we have um you know we get post-up stands that are collapsible to do that yeah. we get costco chairs and costco tables it's it's just really funny how how much here they make out of they make out plastic. of it, you know? Here, here it's the the world of plastic, um, good or bad. But as far as furniture concerned, it's 
easy to clean, hose it down, do, stack it up. Um, that's why when people think of Saigon, and as you said very rightly, I mean, people think of, oh, the millions upon millions of motorbikes. Yes, it's life in the city. Mm -hmm. But lurking under the surface is, hey, guys, look at how people sit. Um, and it was easy to go and do plastic chairs. But I sort of went, nah, look at how everybody uses the stools. Let's, let's tr concentrate on the stool aspect. Yeah. Yeah, it's just really... And, it's... and then I found all different heights of stools. You know, there was the real little ones, like maybe a few centimeters or six inches off the ground. People would know six inches more. But, um, you know, those are, if you're really getting down for something low, and then mm -hmm. they come up to about a foot, and then probably the tallest I've ever seen is about a foot and a half. Yeah. Um, you know... I tried contacting some of the companies, but they um, who manufacture, but they were outside the city. Oh, yeah, they, yeah, those those were really cool. I just it just goes to show you how much they make out of one little tool. Um, and yeah, and and just you know, talking about the time that you've been in in uh, Saigon, um, in Vietnam, uh, you also took the chance to do a little photo journalism for recycling recently. Right. right. And that's um, the one that's, yeah, it's ongoing. Yeah. I was right. I was reading, you know, what you wrote and, um, I found interesting that most of the recycling or the recyclers are, are migrant women from suburbs or the rural um, areas. It is a, grassroots street level profession mm -hmm. um as far as recycling goes you know uh good or bad vietnam has a not great reputation as far as recycling goes the government's moving ahead with certain major programs corporations are signing on behind it but it has always grown from the street level yeah And where I'm presently presently living, there's a street not too far away bordering the river that is a whole street about two kilometers long or about a mile and a half of just major um, things from the port, but recycling centers of everything, cardboard, plastic, aluminum, uh, metals. So I go down that street and I've got a whole bevy of recycling stories right before me. Wow. And the people who go around and collect take their cardboard or plastics or aluminum cans and it is a rough job, but they're up. You know, from usually, like I when I talked to one of the women that I was interviewing, um, they're out seven in the morning, either pedaling on their little cart or their bicycle, depending on what they carry, and they make their rounds. And yeah. they'll pick up the flattened cardboard boxes or the cans, and they have relationships with various stores in the neighborhood, and they'll collect. 
and it'll bring it to one of these recycling centers who pays them. Yeah. So much per kilo, um, you know, one kilo is 2.2 pounds. So it's, they get paid by the kilo for what, depending on what material they're bringing. So it's very much a grassroots um, industry and it is not regulated. It's not protected, but what I've in talking in having the entree through my friend whose parents own a recycling company, one of these recycling centers, mm-hmm. um, it's very interesting. So, like, not more than 10 minutes away from me is a community where all these street people live in this, in this neighborhood. Yeah. There, you know, there's small houses and they're all, this is where they live. They go out every morning. They do, they raise families, they kids go to school and, but they're living. And a number of them, the story, whether it's my neighborhood or others, Generally speaking, these people have come here for um, better economic times. They will leave agricultural areas that um, don't provide, have been flooded. Uh, There's various reasons that um, maybe it's for better schooling for their kids. And um, they all migrate into the city usually somebody has come before from their area, their village and established roots. So it's like a pipeline coming in. They know the areas and they will get involved in this um, industry. And while we look at it, maybe from my perspective and say, how can you subsist on what you're making? They came here to improve their lot right because it wasn't sustainable for uh, any number of reasons um outside and like you say some of these people their majority of them are women um they will leave their family they'll go visit them depending on how far they came um they can see them once a month they can see them once every three months send the money back um, it is a, um, a real eye opener for yeah. how people, you know, work and you think you don't put yourself above it at all. I'm trying to photographically in writing, um, give a voice or give visualization to these people who, again, like the stool are there are an integral part of society here, but are kind of either taken for granted or not paid attention to yeah that's a good point huh take you know being taken for granted i mean they're doing the the grunt work for the exactly. for the city to stay clean right so as much as possible i mean yeah. it's you, you still wouldn't consider this a i mean basically it's okay um in certain areas, you still see a lot of dumping, a lot of, especially in the rivers and secluded areas, lots and things. And you say, oh, my God, this is terrible. No worse than what you'd see in the States. Um, but I would say that people are more, for the most part, other than the dumping that you see, um, are more getting more conscious of polluted rivers mm-hmm. and what 
recycling and things can add to the quality of life. Yeah. Gosh, especially if you're so close to to the city in, in that regard where you know you're all, you're not living in the street but basically you know you're living in these little communities everyone's packed in in one community and you know imagine if this one little community just never took out the recycling or the trash it'd be a nightmare well they they have certain programs um the big thing is organic waste and uh, materials waste. And a lot of it is either not separated or it's left to, you know, after you throw out your garbage, your food and your scraps and your expendables, mm-hmm. non material stuff like cardboard, plastic and stuff. Then the question is, does it get se- where does it get separated? Like I live right now in a high rise building and we have chutes and it's, you have separate facility for garbage, organic garbage and for materials recycling. Mm-hmm. Everybody's very conscious about putting the stuff in the correct bins, but I don't know what happens to it when it goes downstairs to go down to the basement and yeah. go the people who work on the shoots. How do they separate the stuff? Where do they, where does it go? And that was part of the story that I was trying to do with these grassroots recycling people. They're the ones who from businesses mainly pick up the, pick up the cardboard, the boxes for the deliveries Uh, pick up the aluminum cans that are collected and they take them to these recycling centers. Oh, okay. Do you, do you know if um, the businesses would, um, you know, in, in a way pay these collectors or was it? They do. That's how the, that's how the collectors make their money. And they sell, they sell by the kilo. In other words, they sell, flattened cardboard boxes mm-hmm. for 2,000 dong, which is the Vietnamese currency, mm-hmm. 2,000 dong per kilo because it's a low priority. Um, plastic gets about, scrap metal gets about a dollar a kilo and plastics vary depending on what uh, whether they're just plastic cans or whether they're pails or things like that, but you're roughly looking at maybe ten thousand, which is about fifty cents a kilo. Mm-hmm. So it it different materials collect and and when they when they hand them in by weight, um, they make x amount per cardboard, x amount per plastic. X amount per kilo of aluminum cans. So yes, that's how they make their living. They are paid by these recycling centers, um, which is like my friend's family. So they buy most all material, not only from new street vendors, but they got deals with companies that pick up um, large format 
metals and things like that, take it to them, they buy it, and then they bring it to the local scrap metal yard or whatever. Okay. It's it, it's like um, stages. Yeah. Yeah, it's an intricate system. but it, Yeah, it, it works. It's perpetual. When I went out to with my friend's family and they were on a plastics recycling run and um it's way outside the city it was about Mm -hmm. an hour outside the city and we got there and they were taking they go about once a week because they take um about each of these huge bales these big plastic contain big plastic bags worth of uh they weigh about 60 to 70 kilos per bag of plastics, mm-hmm. let's say in this case. It took the truck, when they fill up the truck, then they make a run. And when we got out there, our our truck had 10 of these bags. And they put in, it. I asked them how much was their load, and they said it was um, just over well, in, in U.S. terms, it was just over a ton of recycled plastic cans, cups, whatever. Right. So um, they paid the collectors, various collectors, certain big items um, are done by small collection companies mm-hmm. and brings it to them. But most of the cans, the cardboard and things are all brought by these street workers. Wow. That's a, that's a lot of work. It's very labor intensive. I mean, the average, it's almost, almost a 24 hour situation because I've, I've gone out at night and seen the workers, um, on the streets separating stuff in bags so they can deliver it the next morning. You know, you know, what's funny about that, Jim is here in the States we have, it's such a hassle just to divide your plastic in your cans. (laughs) <laughs> yeah and then everybody um, thinks it's a big it's a big um thing i mean when i went out to the plastics place as you saw in the article that shot of the room with the ladies in it mm-hmm. they are separating all the plastics by color you know if it's a white detergent bottle mm-hmm. or you know, plastic bottle of laundry detergent that goes in one bin and then they scrape the labels off. So they have the raw white plastic. Right. And that when they get enough together of white plastic material that gets sent for shredding and then it's converted into material to make whatever they're making. Yeah. You know, um, the samples I showed were packing tape, and melt it down and make packing tape. They make planters out of it, different colors. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it's it's a fascinating. It looks very simplistic in execution, but it's extremely labor intensive. Yeah. And it is something that like I spoke to the woman. I said, you know, do you realize you're making a contribution to recycling? She goes, it's a paycheck. <laughs> you know, as long as people pe- people keep using it, I can't see anybody, you know, nothing's going to stop people from using plastics, cardboard and things like that. So it's 
almost like a guarantee, you know, for these people, it's guaranteed income. Yeah. I see. It's never going to go away. There's no virus or there's no industry turn down. There's always going to be. Yeah. The thing is that it's so convenient, right? You can find it everywhere and it's easy to make. But a lot, the problem is, especially here, how much of it gets recycled. Right. Yeah. What's the percentage? A lot of of it gets, a lot of it gets put into landfill and what doesn't get put into landfill, especially plastics, they tend to dump in the ocean. And that's where it is one of the, unfortunately, it's one of the countries that was earmarked for plastic pollution by dumping. And, or, you know, and then they burn um, or people will just burn their garbage, which I've seen happen out my window in the fields and it is that adds to pollution another way. <laughs> I mean, there's no happy medium. Yeah. At least they are making strides and making good attempts to educate the public, to have programs sponsored by companies, because this stuff has to, you know, if not, they're gonna choke on it. Yeah. Man, it's tough when you have such a large and concentrated amount of people in one area. Yeah. Right? I mean, this is one of the major... It's not like Mexico City, which has, what, like 15? This one has about 9.5 million people in kind of what's called Greater Saigon. Wow. So so um, many people. Yeah. And because it's at river level, it... There's certain sections of the city that flood. It is definitely prone to climactic conditions. So they have to be extra wary of their programs. Yeah. Gosh, I could not imagine living in that large of a city. I'm sure it would be fun at first. Um, (laughs) But, you you know, know, I'm having such a hard time just staying here in Orange County. Yeah. I mean, the funny part about being raised in New York, um, when I'm, you know, was old enough and moved back into the city, living in Manhattan was condensed, you know, and everybody's hustling and everybody, the pace and everybody's yelling and the noise pollution, you know, this is what you grew up with. I was fortunate to grow up in a part of part of the city that was reasonably quiet also by the water um i live i've lived most every place except irvine by the water Mm -hmm. so um you know whether it was intentional or whether it was just happenstance that's part of me subconsciously i'm gravitated to being in proximity to water um it's funny though that i thought once i left new york I'd never live in a big city again. Los Angeles, you know, I moved to Santa Monica before I was living in you spend time in down in LA proper downtown mm-hmm. when I had to. I was still near the water. It was still a reasonable size community, you know, even though it's a city unto itself, it's not like New York. Even Los Angeles is not like New York because it's a horizontal city, not a vertical city. Not mm-hmm. everybody's compact. It's not San right. Francisco. San Francisco is like New York. Right. And I thought, you know, 
OC then and in places I'm never going to live in a overcrowded city again. That's why I love Montreal or places like that. They're human sized, what I consider human sized cities. Here I come and I'm in one of the major population centers of Southeast Asia. <laughs> and it's not that I'm, I adapted very easily to living here um, in a sense that, okay, I don't have a motorbike and drive myself, but it doesn't bother me. Um, the noise or the traffic as much because this is what I was raised in. Right. So I'm kind of used to it. Yeah, that makes People sense. who come from the suburbs, who grew up in the suburbs, who grew up in out of an urban center, come into a major city and go, oh, it's exciting. It's just, oh my God, I can't stand life here. You know, it's yeah. how, can, how can you live here? It's it, it, There's so much taxing. I guess there's a certain verve about the city it is very reminiscent of new york saigon's definitely a 24-hour city good or bad stuff goes on you can always go out um like any other city there's safe areas there's questionable areas especially if you're a foreigner but you know the city functions i always my first times in saigon i was like eh. Two, three days, goodbye. And that's unfortunately what most tours or travel do. Mm -hmm. They don't spend a lot of time in Saigon. There's not a major tourist destination. There are certain highlights. Right. But it's not a city that most tourists give more than uh, three days max. And that's pushing it. More or less like two full days. Yeah. They get they get taken around to tourist sites. Well, there's so much in this city if you go beyond and go out to, to have someone knowledgeable and local or in the tourism field take you to the neighborhoods to really show you Saigon. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that's what's made life interesting is exploring. Hadn't been able to do too much of it during the lockdown, which was about three weeks plus, because everything was closed up and it was hard getting around. Right. Um, but now that it's opened up, there's a verve to get out and try to make the best of it and get out and go to the different neighborhoods and explore. And that's what I find interesting about a city. Yeah. You, you may not find interesting things all the time or to your liking, but at least... There's it provides enough opportunity, whereas you know between you and you and I, I was bored silly in in Irvine. You mm -hmm. know what do you got? Mall shopping malls. I mean, there's hardly anything substantial to go do. I mean, yes, you want to go parks and outdoors, and it's great life. But beyond that, there's not much intellectual stuff going on there's not much to choose from yeah it's it, so it becomes vanilla after yeah. many many years living and Very. um you know which well, is actually the reason why I've, be, I've become you know more interested in traveling is because orange county is nice but it's nice to live in it's nice to like raise a family Right, but Absolutely. only for so long, you know. At some point, you got to get out. 
At some point, you well, have to go. I mean, as long as as long as you have the ability to travel and come back to it, it's nice. If you mm-hmm. want to make your base living somewhere else, that's a different story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. Just about just getting out once in a while, you know. And like I said, it's nice living here, even though you know you're Monday through Saturday, you you have traffic. Um, and nowadays, I mean, I, I really don't know what's going to happen after this whole, um, lockdown is finished. Um, we're starting to open up here. Um, I know that Vietnam wasn't really affected all that much, right? No, no. I mean, they locked down pretty fast, but there was very, very little. I mean, they're, they're kind of a shiny example to other countries, how it should be handled. Mm -hmm. So it's so much of a analogy of or or and that analogy is not the right word is a conundrum it, it's because i'm looking at it here and saying yes you know my i was i was living back in the states and i sh- i was going to return to the states but why what have, what have i got there and look at all the problems look at all the you know how things have been affected by the pandemic let's not get into the you know, recent political issue and stuff. Here, you know, life resumed after a very trying, very intense three weeks lockdown period. Mm-hmm. But now the city but is it worked, right? kind of back to normal, almost normal. It's not, business-wise, it's not, I think, ever going to return to what it was but if you look at it, like somebody asked me the other day, and I said, it's about, I don't know if I was talking with you in prior, or it's about 85% back to the way it was. And people are out. I mean, tonight's Friday night. The beer halls are going to be jammed, <laughs> you know, karaoke places. It's limited numbers still. In case, but you go to an outdoor restaurant, you go out to these beer gardens and things. I mm-hmm. mean, you don't go, what? What? What's wrong? Nothing. There's no. There's like no just, worry about distancing or anything yeah. else. Are you Are you so guys wearing masks? Yeah. Um, I know that, you told that me that it's issue. it's been part of uh, well, part of the culture now, right? For many many well, years. See, it's always been part of the culture because you have to wear a mask if you're riding a bike, and one of the reasons is the pollution. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you get 20, you know, there's, there's like 9 million people in God knows how many bikes, <laughs> but they figure like two bikes at least, you know, per family. And yeah. you can see there's like 20 million motorbikes. I mean, take a look at some pictures that you see of traffic in Vietnam, oh, yeah. in Saigon, and you just go, you, you go, how the hell does anybody get it anywhere? <laughs> yeah. um, so you wear masks. So the fact that during the period of the pandemic, everybody who went outside was required to wear a mask. Well, you wore a mask virtually anyway. Right. So it didn't really stifle your, um, you know, you're, you're, if you're used to it. Right, And right. there was no question here of, oh, you're taking my personal freedom and I'm not wearing this and yeah. screw this. Yeah. No. And it's, it's just common sense. Yeah. That's what I feel people are, are 
going on the whole issue of personal freedoms and all this shit. It, it was seriously, it's just common sense. So here it was nothing to go out and wear a mask because half the time you're wearing one anyway. Mm-hmm. So now just to wear it a few more instances, I mean, if a server comes up to you in a restaurant and they're wearing a mask, nobody complains. I mean, you have to take your mask off to eat. Yeah. But if you're being served by someone who chooses to wear a mask, if that's the restaurant policy, fine. Who cares? Yeah. Here, I think it's it's bound to become an, a political issue. Uh, yes, it's it's a, it's been a political issue, but I think it's going to become just a thing. Another thing that we do in in times of flu season. I don't think that we've ever done this before. I don't re- I don't recall any time. You well, know, in no, my time flu, here. Yeah, you're right. Flu, I mean, we weren't around a century ago in 1918 when they had this, the Spanish flu and uh-huh. it devastated urban areas, especially in the East Coast, mm-hmm. and hundreds of thousands of people died. Um, you know, you're looking at something with which now has worldwide, like the plague, uh, bubonic plague or something back in Europe, Um they didn't have anything like masks or, you know, knew how to, how the thing was transmitted. You're a little more aware of it now. Yeah. But, you know, when you're in a society that uses the mask most of the time anyway, so extending it is no great shakes, you know, yeah. has nothing, it's it, no it skin off anybody's yeah. back. But yeah. because I look at it now, I'm looking at it and going, what is people making such a big fuss about? <laughs> it's common sense. Yeah. You know, they, yeah, they're, it really they're, is. they're extrapolating it for all sorts of reasons, political reasons, social reasons, you know, and, and it's just absolutely mind boggling to say, you know, it, everything's got to become politicized. Everything's yeah. got to become, you know, my beliefs in this and um, my constitutional rights. Oh, come on. Yeah. People are getting so caught up in that. Right. And, you know, I I feel like I I know that the travel industry got hit severely bad. It was really, really bad. Um, It's virtually, you know, no traveling around the world unless it's business or, you know, for, um, it was not, there was, you know, know, virtually nothing. Um, You know, do you think that when this is all over, do you think the travel industry will resume as it was? Maybe, maybe seventy percent of you know seventy percent of it well, will resume. Where do you where do you see? Okay, my perspective is, I think it eventually will go in stages. I think local, regional countrywide travel will be the accepted way of inching back over the course of the next six months to a year. Mm -hmm. International travel is going to take longer on a personal basis. I mean, for me, I've never been on a a mate. I've always been on river cruises, obviously for work, Mm -hmm. but I've never walked on an ocean liner because 
I just, I can't, that's not my way, preferred way of traveling. Right. But knowing what's happened with even diarrhea on a ship, a breakout, or now, you know, packing 2,500 people into a, a confined basic space mm-hmm. and saying, you're going to go, I think that's absolutely ludicrous. <laughs> um, Good luck, There are huh? aspects of the travel industry that I don't think will ever be the same. Yeah. For, for at least a while until this is either totally under control. Um, because if it's like the silent enemy, you can't tell. And if people are going to have another wave has been starting to happen with schools opening up and things like that, it's just something we're as a, as a whole world society, we're going to have to adjust to. Yeah. It's not business as usual. Right. Um, maybe it'll be the shakeout of certain things that were needed, but, um, you know, and say, Hey, I could see certain things. I, I hate like to see any part of the travel industry suffer mm-hmm. because obviously we're all out of jobs. Right. And I think travel promotes a great deal of understanding between people, regardless of your, you know, when you cut the politics out, when you cut all the rhetoric out, you look, get down, and you look. If, if I'm going to see someone in another in another country, I want to know. I'm interested in traveling there because of either the beauty of the place, the culture. I want to see how people live different than I do. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what always intrigued me about travel: the fact that I can do that as readily right now is really stifling for me. Yeah. Um. Will it open up? Yeah. Will it come back to the level of international travel purely as for joy or for experience? Um, will people want to travel in groups anymore? Big groups? I don't think so. You know, I think group travel for the time being, at least maybe for the next couple of years, will, if it happens, maybe it'll be limited to like six people. Yeah. So you can easily distance, you can easily keep your, you know, um, things at, 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 you can function, you can see, you can do, but at least it's manageable. Mm-hmm. Sticking 40 people on a bus and doing things is, I think that is going to take either a long time to come back or it's not going to come back at all. And frankly, that was the way a lot of tours for an older generation were happening. I think it's kind of in synonymous with what's been going on with more of a trend to Gen X and, and traveling now is that people are not so interested in being herded. They're more interested in, in going off and really having an experience exploring either solo or maybe in just a small, finite small group, group huh? of a half a dozen people. Yeah, why, why do you think that is? What do, you, what do you think is the difference between the older generation where everyone traveled in groups, they rode on the same bus? I mean, you, you know, by the end of the trip, you, you made a friend, basically. Well, 
well, okay, it's true. There's a lot of friendships that were made in, in group travel. People would go together and things like that. And I'm not poo-pooing it, but when travel really started taking off, people who were wealthier, who could travel internationally, were doing it somewhat for the sense of exploration. I mean, I'm not talking about if you were going for a National Geographic expedition, mm -hmm. but if you were just traveling to Europe or things, and you want to see the art and the museums and stuff, it was done because you could put a stamp in your passport and you could see these wonderful places and you could brag about it. As it kind of evolved into the 20th century, travel became something more affordable to people, especially yeah. with the advent of the jet age and right. things like that, more avenues to enjoy traveling. Again, people were going to more places, not just the world major tourist spots, but they were going more offbeat. As it evolved, let's say in the past 20 years to now, I think more people want experiential travel they're not necessarily wondering about going to see the museum in paris although that's you know wonderful art they would rather go to the wine district in southeast france mm -hmm. and study wines yeah so the the aspirational level the experiential level i think it's not so much on just seeing but it's getting off the beaten track and having unique experiences. Right. That's why I think it's going to be easier to promote travel of that fashion, you know, moving forward. It's not going, you're not going to herd 40 people in a bus and going to, you know, the tourist sites around the city in one day or a half day. And that's going to be your experience of coming to a city like Saigon or coming to, you know, Los Angeles or whatever. Yeah. So I think it's, it's much more in depth mm -hmm. and it'll be a lot more individualistic or small group centered um, for experiences. And that's was the trend that was happening like, where we used to work with custom experiences and things like that. That's the way the industry was heading. Yeah. And you know, that really resonates with me. I mean, just, I've only traveled here in the U S uh, right. but I, I, you know, I recall the trip I took with you and John to Chicago right. where right. we made it almost like it was our mission to go have Chicago style pizza. Yeah. And just, and just having that, made yeah. the experience of being there that much better you know I mean, look work working way i did and even though i was on the road god one year i hit 30 weeks on the road um it was a great experience because not only okay i it was business first but then if i got to spend the weekend or something in a place i could explore it yeah. I mean, I got to see places that normally I probably wouldn't have or wouldn't put on my priority list of getting to and exploring, you know, I mean, I think I've hit between my travels and work about 
44 of the 50 states. I I don't think I've ever would have chosen to do that. Yeah. You know, but the work took me there. Right. And I saw parts of cities. I mean, I always made it my business to go to take time and go to a museum if there was. Um, I remember seeing the Museum of Photography in Houston. I didn't even know they had one. And it was in, in, in Dallas. It was great. You know, getting little snippets of a city other than the tourist aspect um, is definitely worthwhile. I mean, yes, work afforded me the, the ability to go there. Mm-hmm. Um, and these were really cool experiences. Even if, even if it was, I have a friend who also can work with the company for a while, but I knew him prior and his big thing was finding the unique restaurants in every city. Yeah. I mean, he was, a. I, I, I call him up and I'd say, Hey Don, I'm going to so-and-so. What do you, rec-? you know, what's the unique places? Yeah. So yeah, that's... This, this is, you know, if you have the gourmet aspect, uh, you know, whatever it is, um, it's finding unique things about a city that you need time to explore. I mean, beyond the major centers of, you know, the country. Yeah, it was great finding deep dish pizza and seeing how it compared to New York pizza or L.A. pizza, yeah. you know, whatever. Um what was so special about deep dish pizza? I saw a cartoon in the New Yorker magazine that goes, bottom line, it's just a casserole. You know, <laughs> it's a casserole with crusts. Yeah. That's all. <laughs> That's <laughs> funny. So, um, yeah. I mean, but it's the fun of experiencing things like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, coming from a place where all you can get is like Little Caesars Pizza or Domino's or yeah. Pizza Hut. <laughs> Don't having having yeah having been bagels. having been to um you know i went to i i visited you know chicago a few times um oh, i yeah. went one time with my brother we went to a place called pizzeria numero uno in downtown right you know right. we waited like you know it was like 30 minute wait but at the end of it you know when we're when we get this pie they call it a pie you know, it's layered. Literally. <laughs> it's it's layered. You can see the layers. It's the meatballs, you know, the tomato sauce, you know, the cheese. It's all layered. And it's just it was a, it was just a really cool experience to just go and just go on that little hunt, you know, to go find that pizza or the dive bar or whatever. Yeah. Um, it just made it a lot more interesting than to go to yeah, I mean, the, don't, you know. That's exactly right. I mean, you know, it's the same whether you're going to New York or whether you're going to Saigon or whether you're going to Chicago. You know, yes, there are iconic spots either that have a lot of PR or have gained a reputation like restaurants or some social cultural event. But the real aspect of finding the city is not just doing the tourist sites. Yeah. You know, I, there's, there's a gentleman who was contacting me on, um, through Facebook because I put a post about, um, something about life here. And he goes in all my years in the industry, I've never been to Southeast Asia, let alone Saigon. And I go, fine. 
whether I'm with a company or whether not, if you ever want to, you know, come to Saigon, contact me for helpful hints because you're never going to understand the city if you think, oh, it's just, you know, they tell you two days, three days max, and you're never going to see the real Saigon. Right. You're only going to see is tourist sites. Yeah. Yeah, that's unfortunate. And I kind of feel like it's, this, it's the same in New York. Okay, New York has probably multifold museums and cultural institutions and things that you want to see. Mm-hmm. But you got to get out to the neighborhoods to really understand the city. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so that's... it's the same. It's the same anywhere. Right. Yeah. I hope, I hope that when, once this is all over, you know, people start traveling more, um, you know, in all of your years, you know, I, I don't want to get too in depth or too personal, but what has been, what has traveling taught you like the most? Um, okay. Well, it's matured me. Um, I remember taking my first trip overseas solo and it was, um, after I graduated, um, it wasn't on a formal photo assignment, although it led to one. Um, Mm -hmm. I hadn't, as I said, outside of the traveling I'd done to Canada and domestically with my parents and things, I, I didn't travel outside the borders of the, um, overseas. So for me, it was on my own overseas, um, coping for the first time with learning to eat different foods, learning to see how other people live other than, you know, what is an Italian, a real Italian who lives in Italy like, as opposed to the Italians, Americans that I grew up with, (laughs) something like that. You know, what is, what is life in the homeland like? And it's, you know what? It's not staged. It's not some sort of theatrical production that goes on every day for the benefit of a tourist. This is life. This is life over there. Mm -hmm. I mean, you may like it better than where you came from. Right. You know, you're seeing how people live their life day to day, what advantages they have, maybe what advantages you have that they don't have. Yeah. That's that's really important. Sometimes it was, and if you don't, if you learn not to look down on people, that's their life. Yeah. Um, You can't measure it by what you have. If you're fortunate to grow up in a certain place that has more advantages than others, not always saying that growing up in the States was the perfect life. Mm -hmm. It was a lot better than a lot of other places, granted. Um. But if you close your eyes and you don't see how other people live and appreciate what they're doing for their life, how their struggles, their things, it is you're not understanding humanity. I mean, I come here in Saigon and I'm looking like you go out to a park, say on a weekend or something or in the neighborhood, and if you see families with kids um, – and there's a lot of kids here. I mean, they're just like any place else. They want the same things. They want to enrich their their kids' lives. They want good education. They want opportunities. I mean, they take care of their kids. They 
you know, the same as we would growing up in the States. I mean, it, there's not a lot of basic human differences. Yeah. Yeah. There's maybe, there's maybe differences in how it's happening, but you know what, you know, basically they want the same thing for their kids. Yeah. That's really important that you say that Jim, because in these times where it's all chaotic here in the States, you know, we're, we're a melting pot. We have so many uh, cultures, so many different types of people, but at the end of the day, we all want the same thing, you know? Yeah. I mean, Which is, to me, you want a peaceful life. You want to be able to do what you're, hopefully what you are trained to do, what your passions are, and just live a peaceful, you know, non-stressed, if that's possible, life. Yeah. To fulfill yourself. I mean, I think that's a basic um, need and a basic want, no matter where you are. It's just gotten to or derived in different ways in different places. Yeah. So in some places struggle. Yeah. In some places it's easier. Yeah. So it's really about, you know, traveling really is about understanding other people right yeah man that's I mean, really that that's key. really deep and i i'm glad that we're having this conversation because you know for the past ever since i started working for this company jim i've always you know just going out to vegas you know twice a yeah. year uh, getting just getting out of you know this bubble that i live in here it really right. started opening my eyes and and how how it is out there and how different but yet how everyone is the same like again we all want the same thing um you know we all have different aspirations but it all coincides with you know happiness yeah as best as possible you're yeah. right and i think that's the advent of travel it's getting out of your bubble yep um, it's people get out of their bubble for various reasons. They go for a pure escape vacation. They go to explore other cultures. Um, regardless of your reason, I think travel makes you a better person. Um, if you go purely for relaxation, say you want to go down to the Mexican Riviera, say you want to go to an island in the Caribbean, whatever, or the you know, Hawaii or one of the South Pacific islands, mm -hmm. more or less you're going to just escape and, you know, just turn off, if you can, the, you know, pressures of daily life and people need that every so often, whether right. you have to go at that far or whether you just escape up to the mountains in Big Bear or something mm -hmm. like that. And, you know, it's just to get out of your environment, even for a weekend to break the monotony. Yeah. Of, and, of and just shut routine. down, shut off the noise, you know? Right. Right. And especially yeah. nowadays yeah. where the noise could not be any louder. Well, yeah. I mean, what's basically happened over the past month has definitely been, you know, um, terrible but 
it's put a whole new, you know, layer on the pandemic mm-hmm. issue where you can escape to. I mean, yes, to escape to a place outside of your state, outside of your country even, to give you another perspective on life, to explore maybe a passion of yours, whether it be hiking. Uh, My cousin is an avid hiker. He goes different places around the world to hike trails. Mm -hmm. You know, people go to explore historical places. You know, whatever, if that's fulfilling a passion. Yeah. Um, What I really think is, regardless of your reason, you need to travel. Yeah. And I think that is what has happened now with this, if you take all the tumult of the world going on right now with the protests and political stuff, if you just look at the pandemic, how that's limited mobility and people's desire, even get out of their house, yeah, you know, go walk in the neighborhood. That's all you could do. Yeah, and you know, I mean, I, the way it seems is that traveling is an innate part of our, um, yeah, of our nature, of human nature. You know, we talk about and we hear about nomads, and um, you know, just people in history tra- traveled around the world and. We discover new land and and so on and so forth. Um, I just I think that it's part of our nature. And then when you you know you like nowadays, our life has become very systematic. So yeah. you know we we grow up and you know we go to school. We you graduate high school. You go into college. Then you have a career. It's always it's all for the most part. It's in the same area or the same right. town the same state um and and you know and you see what's happening now like especially after being locked down for five months like you know what do you expect people to do i mean now you, nowadays you have like riots yeah i mean yeah. it just it, it just makes me to? think about that it makes me think about the what if this wasn't going on like would there be riots if we weren't in lockdown or were people were, would people be more relaxed? Well, Maybe they took a trip. Not to take, okay, not to take this conversation off on another tangent, but I mean, the reason for the riots and the the stupidity of the riots. There's extremes on both sides, mm-hmm. and whether I mean I've lived through enough in New York in Los Angeles over the past couple of decades to understand people's frustrations and people's, you know, things. But I think this is one of the getting to be one of the most polarized issues because of, well, politics, who's leading the country, etc. But I think that the protest would have happened as a result of the unfortunate death of the individual. Mm-hmm. I don't think it had anything to do with the pandemic. I don't think it had anything to do with stifling travel. Yes, you wouldn't be thinking of going to certain cities until this quieted down. All the riots that I've been through, New York, 
um, California, Los Angeles. I mean, yes, they were all bad, but they did simmer down after a while and life resumed. Mm -hmm. You have the underlying cause. So I don't think the rioting issue now was if you didn't have the pandemic, you'd still have travel. You may be cautious. You may not be going certain places for a while. I think the pandemic and how it caught a number of people unprepared, number of countries around the world, this is not just one country's problem, it is a world problem. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's affected travel. And that's why it's affected people to, people's ability to get out. I mean, it's almost, I mean, the three weeks that I spent, you know, in semi-lockdown, I mean, we could get out, we could do, we could shop, we could do everything else, but you just, everything else, well, businesses were basically closed. You were mm -hmm. operating either mm -hmm. from your house or you were retired for three weeks, you know? Um, it was like almost urban incarceration. Right. I mean, you'd think you'd look out the window every morning and go, this is my view. This is where I can only go so far. Yeah. I mean, you could feel like you're in prison. And I think that goes against just the way we're wired as human beings. Yeah. So that is the parallel that I can make. That's the analogy I can make. Why I think so many people feel frustrated and why that uh, this pandemic is going to change the whole complexion of travel, at least for a while, the way we knew it. Yeah. I think it's probably going to be better. I think people are going to be, um, <laughs> I think people are going to be more open to new ways of traveling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I got my, <laughs> And I also, aside, I got I got my kitty rubbing against my feet. Oh, no, going, it's no problem. Lunchtime. Yeah, no, we can. You know, <laughs> no, Jim. It's not, um, it's not lunchtime. No, she just wants attention. <laughs> yeah, you Come know, I, you know, just talking to you, it it has no. been very insightful. What time is it? Oh no, it's um, early. It's not lunchtime. She just wants to be picked up. Okay, I'm holding her. Yeah, it's uh, okay. No, we we can. No, no, I'm holding. She's purring in my in my lap. It's okay. She just wanted some human human touch yeah i know when i mean this, no, go ahead, continue because it got to an interesting part of the conversation yeah no i was just saying that um just talking to you has been it has been very insightful and you know i i hope that the the world sees it as an opportunity to you know once this lockdown is done and everything has goes semi-normal I, I, I hope people start traveling more so that um yeah you know people can collect their own experiences and and see other people's perspectives because i think that is what is going to really help the dividing forces that we have now where we have clashing yeah. beliefs clashing ideologies you know clashing ideas um i think people would be more understanding like you said, when, when they travel and I, I honestly, I, I can't wait 
I've been working from home for the past, you know, four months. I can't wait to get out. I can't wait to yeah. go and collect some more experiences. And it, overall, I just think that it makes for a, a, a an interesting story. You know, it's and you can you learn so much through traveling. I've learned so much through the limited travel that I have. Yeah. Nowhere near you. Um, well, you'll you'll get, but it's just a question of you know getting over this period, which has stifled everybody. Yeah, and um, you know finding the means and getting back on track to uh, to do. I mean, it, some people are satisfied going, you know, across town. Mm-hmm. Some people are going across oceans. Yeah, it's just the ability to that has been taken away from us for a period of time um, to say what's safe and where can you go. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and I'm sure it's going to bring a lot of change, you know, to the way we, we do the things in terms of traveling. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I think we're going to wrap it up there, Jim. Um, thank Fine. you so much for coming on my oh, podcast. Um yeah, can you? I'm gonna give out your website. Is that okay? So that people can visit sure, your website, sure. take a look at your, you know, your, your uh, photo journalism, your photo documentaries that you've made. Um, yeah, the videos. So, I mean, I would, I need, you know, I'd love to get work if anybody, you know, could use it. Yeah. Any of the. Yeah, you can visit um, jimselkin dot com. That's J I M. S E L K I N dot com. Now, how yeah. how would people be able to reach you the easiest? There's an email. There's an email contact on the um, on the site. There's a there's a tab that says contact, and uh, and it'll come it'll come right to me. Also, you I see that you're active on the social media a little bit. Yeah, I mean they can reach me through Facebook. They can reach me through Instagram, but. Um, Email anywhere. Okay. Well, thank you again, Jim. It's been a pleasure to have you. Um, I usually close out the the podcast with the excerpt of Heart of a Buddha. So if you don't mind holding mm-hmm. on, and then I'll get back to you when we get back sure. offline, okay? No problem. And thanks so much for doing it. No, thank it's you, really Jim. It's really been fun. I hope that we do it again. It's been a lot of fun. Okay. In person. In person, yeah. I hope that you, you know, once this is all over, you can come by and we can yeah. have you in the studio. Okay, so Heart of a Buddha. Phenomena are preceded by the heart, ruled by the heart, made of the heart. If you speak or act with a corrupted heart, then suffering allows you, as the wheel of the cart, the track of the ox that pulls it. And with that, thank you again for joining us today don't forget to leave a comment subscribe if you like this video hit the like button i'll talk to you guys next week bye everybody okay bye